Good morning, everyone. We're looking, as Dara read, at Colossians chapter 3 uh, this morning, verses 1 to 17, so you can get them prepped on your phone or on the Bible in front of you. Just a brief note uh, of overview before we begin proper. Um, this was a letter that was written by Paul on his second stint in prison, the poor man. And it's written to his friend Epipris, who founded this church in uh, Colossae. And Epipris is looking for some advice from him because he is stressed out about some of the stuff that's happening there. Namely, this small church has come under uh, pressure from cultural, um, cultural pressures outside and inside the church, invisible and visible pressures. Corrupt leaders, once again, like Galatia, running amok. But the message of Paul in this Colossian letter, lesson, or letter is that he encourages the church to withstand these pressures because it has been delivered to live in a new world, in a new creation created by God. And King Jesus is reigning from the throne on high in this new world, and he's bringing God's invisible world down to our tangible, visible world. So let's pray before we begin. Father God, as we, um, as we look at this um, lovely passage today, Father, um, would you shine through the words and would you work through me, Lord, to deliver in some small way with my ability, Father, to show the magnificence and the radiance of your love to us, your creation. Um, to show your intentions for us as a church family, to show the grandeur of your plans for us, the grandeur of your plan on the cross, which has redeemed us, and the grandeur of your plan at the end times when we shall finally be like our older brother Jesus and be glorified. So Father, help us to understand these things in some small measure as we look at this text today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when I was a young man, I loved basketball, and I loved playing basketball. In fact, I played way too much basketball for, for many years, and I have some souvenirs to show from that time. But when I was in college, I remember my aunt from America, um, and you have to think, this was before the time of phones and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. And young Irish wannabe basketball players were not open to the NBA and all the razzmatazz and everything that we can see on our TVs now. We only used to get tiny snippets of this. But anyways, my aunt in America sent me over this huge, big, it must have been a five-by-two poster of a guy called Julius Irving. Anyone here might know him as Dr. J. And I used to lie there on bed dreaming, looking up at this poster, wishing I was like him. And really, when I look at him now as a Christian, I can see that all the intentions and all my thoughts and ruminations on that poster were entirely selfish. <laughs> I just wanted to be like him so that I would get fame and that I could just annihilate my opponents in a basketball match. I had dreams of dunking over them, you know, like Dr. J, who this poster depicted in mid-flight. And um, I suddenly realized that genetics were against me and basketball ability was against me as well. I never stood a chance, but for years, I sort of grasped this reality which was a false reality, 
that I could be like him. Everything suffered, including my college studies, when I look back on them now. I spent way too much time in the gym because I really was chasing a dream and I was chasing a false reality. And this is what we're going to look at today as we look at Paul's uh, little passage here. And I want you to ask yourself, um, as we're going through this, ask yourselves in your own head, what is your identity? What do you identify yourself as? Where do you see your identity? Now, there's a lot of different people in this room, and by the very fact that we're in this room together means that we at some point in time have had an interest in godly things. Some of us have been saved by God after seeking, and some of us are still seeking, and some of us are probably just disinterested in the whole God question. But wherever we are in this room today, ask yourself the question, what is my identi identity? Perhaps you're someone who isn't a follower of God in this room today, and you might see your identity as, like I did when I was in college, as being rooted in some sort of athletic dream that you're following, which you might achieve, but probably you won't. Or you might see your identity ruled or rooted in zealousness for social activism. Isn't that very common today? Or you might see your uh, identity rooted in your work, where you have aspirations and dreams of getting into top management, having a lot of people work under you, feeling that power, earning that money. And you're working night and day to try and achieve this goal. Because at this stage in your life, that's where you see your identity. And there's nothing that anyone else can tell you that will change that. Because it's so deeply ingrained in your head, you're trying to live it out. So this morning, ask yourself the question, where is your treasure? What have you set your heart on? And in this chapter, or in this little passage uh, in Colossians today, it touches, I think, heavily on things like these. And Paul speaks about, I think, we could whittle down the main points in this passage to three particular points. Paul says that as Christians, we must do three things. We must, number one, live in the right place. We must, number two, put on the right Christian clothes. And number three, we must sing the right song. So the first point, I think we see in verses one to four, and we're going to have a look at these and read these now. The first point is we must live in the right place. So if we look at verses one to four, we just refresh them in our mind. We could, of course, preach an entire sermon on these, in fact, on any one of these verses, but nevertheless, if then you have been raised with Christ, Paul says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. I think to live out our identity as Christians, we must hold in our minds one chief aim, and that chief aim is to maintain our relationship with Christ. Because when that relationship with Christ breaks or fails, and, and you can all attest to this, all your other relationships, either with friends or family or churchgoers, that begins to, to fail as well. That's been my experience anyways. So therefore, Paul sort of says, in order to maintain this relationship with Christ, 
we must kind of have handrails in place, a bit like, you know, when you break a leg and you're coming back in rehab and you have these handrails in place to help the bones heal again. And the two handrails that maybe Paul is suggesting there to have set in place in your life and to look at these things is, number one, seek the things that are above. And number two, set your minds on things that are above. Now, they're very similar. But I like to think of them as ways of supporting the Christian and maintaining this relationship with Christ. Um, Paul is encouraging the Colossians to do this, but what does it mean? Well, before we look at what it entails, Paul makes the point that, do you see the condition there? It's on the basis that we are raised with Christ, that we can do either of these two things, either seeking the things that are above or setting our minds on the things that are above. Or put, away, or put another way, Paul is saying that setting our minds on things above and seeking things above is not possible unless first you have been raised by Christ. Now, in this world today, we know that there are so many ways that people try and pursue spiritual development. Meditation, religious good works, ultra-spirituality, many, many different types of ways. Just go into any bookshop and you'll be amazed at the amount of ways you could possibly follow to try and get in touch with a God, the God, the universe, or whatever. But Paul says, no, to be able to maintain a relationship with Christ, indeed to get to know Christ, means first of all, he has to raise you. In other words, Paul is saying that you cannot look within yourself for anything good. Christ has to do something new for you. In fact, Paul is saying that you have to die to your old self. You have to die to your old self. You must leave the old man or the old woman on the cross. Paul reminds, if you skip back there, if you have your finger in Colossians to verse 12 in chapter 2, Paul reminds them that having been buried with him in Christ, in other words, Paul is speaking to the Christians in Colossae, and he's saying, you have been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, when you are raised with Christ, when you, have, when you have been given new life by Christ, your new identity automatically comes with that. You can't strive to search for it. You can't strive to win it. It just becomes part of the wonderful gift of grace that God through Christ has given you. And you know what? With this new identity, you get a new home a new place to live in. It's not a temporary place like we're living in today. It's not a temporary place that we're passing through. It's a permanent place. It's heaven itself. You see, not alone are you given a new home, but you are united with Christ. You are united with Christ. You're joined with him. And he is your head. And you can look on yourself as being the members of Christ and Christ being your head. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12, um, sorry, verses 19, I think, Paul speaks about this. He says, holding fast to the head. In other words, the Christian is to hold fast to the head, and the head of the church is Christ. And Paul continues, from whom, from Christ, the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, 
grows with a growth that is from God. So Christ, who's your head, is seated on the right hand of God. And you, because you're in union with Christ, because you're joined with Christ, you, in a sense, are seated up there as well in the heavenlies. Even though we walk through this temporal earth, through this temporal world as sojourners, we are, in a sense, part of the heaven as well. In fact, Christ has come down and given us a taste of the heavenlies in Christ. Okay, someone was looking out at the rain this morning, mightn't think, boy, I'm living here in Galway, there's nothing heavenly about Galway on this particular rainy day. But therefore, Paul says, we must seek the things that are above. We must set our minds on them. You know, when you think about things above, what comes into your mind? When you think about Christ, and I know sometimes these images we have of God sitting on a cloud up there, silly things that are so ingrained in us sometimes from our childhood days. I don't know about you guys, but they're still in my, they're still in my mind with the angels, you know, singing behind them. But anyways, none of that infant stuff. When you think of Christ or when you envisage Christ prior to his return, where do you see him? I think I see him, and I think Psalm 110 shows it beautifully. I see Christ seated on the right hand of the Father. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that is. I know this is metaphorical speaking. But I see that he's poised. He's sitting because it designates that he's achieved something. Yes, he is still our intercessor. intercessor. He's our um, helper as we come before the Lord in supplication and prayer. But he is sitting because he has completed some very important work. In fact, he has defeated the enemy of this world. The enemy that we battle now, Jesus has already defeated and is sitting from the trials of battle, waiting in expectation. In fact, Psalm 110 says that his feet, he's waiting to have his feet on the neck of the accuser of Satan. And this was a very common image in medieval times when one king had victory over another king in battle. He would drag the other poor unfortunate king in front of him and use his neck as his footstool. I mean, how demeaning that must have been to the other king. Well, this is what Jesus, in part, has done and is in heaven at this time, waiting to return for us, his church. Do you think about things like these? Do you use this image to encourage you when the enemy is trying to draw you away from Christ? Now, that's not to say when Paul says, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. That doesn't mean that we're to ignore all temporal things in this world. That would just be foolish. We have many important things in this world to tend to, our families, our jobs, our health, our, um, you know what I mean, exercise. And these take up time and they do consume some of our passions. But they are necessary. They're good earthly things. What Paul is saying here is that we are to ignore or we're to cast away foolish earthly things that might tend to drag us back into sin again. Even though we're in union with Christ, even though Christ has raised us from the dead, given us new life, we still find, as we sit here, listen to this message today, we still find that we struggle with sin, don't we? Sin hasn't gone away. I think I heard one preacher once say that the enemy has been defeated, 
but he's still storming the courts. Super angry. He has not accepted defeat. That will come one day. But we do have the power, we do have success and mastery over the power of sin in our lives anymore. And we can see in Romans chapter 6, Paul telling this over and over again, we are not slaves to sin anymore. We now have a choice. Christ has redeemed us. He's bought us at a price by his sacrifice on the cross so that we are now his. Each one of us sitting here this morning in church who believes in Christ, work on the Christ on your behalf to redeem you from your son. You are Christ's. You are his. You are his possession. How comforting is that? No one can grab, him, grab you away from him. Even yourself. But you know what? This union that we have in Christ now, Paul says, it's hidden. I wonder why does he say this? He says, it's hidden. Well, I think he says it's hidden because this perfect union is not to be seen by anyone at all at this particular time. And as we walk this earth, this temporal abode that we're in now, we don't see this perfect union in our lives with Christ. We are still sinners. We are still broken. And unfortunately, that's in part what the world sees in the church at this particular time. Because the world is watching the church. And sometimes the world doesn't see a pretty picture of the church. If you look at the book of Revelation, you can see seven churches outlined there. And you can see seven major faults that the world can easily see in the church. For example, the church in Ephesus were cold at that time. The church in Smyrna were slandered and imprisoned. The church in Thyatira were tolerant of the intolerant, etc., etc. The church in Sardis, they were sleepy and lifeless. But there is comfort even in the shame of how the world perceives the church. Because just as the church can be marked by humiliations, Christ himself, when he was walking in this temporal world, was also marked by humiliations. But the big difference was, unlike his church today, he didn't sin. In fact, he identified with sinners, yet he did not sin. This is a huge difference. One commentator says, how impossible for the man and the woman of this world to see the glory of God in the man on the cross. But that's what's happening, isn't it? Verse 4 completes the story. The universe, a day is coming when the Christ who we worship in this building today will be revealed to the astonishment of the world. Isn't that amazing? The universal church will be revealed for what it is. And Christ then will be, as another commentator says, will be so united with his people that the glory manifested by him will also be manifested by them. We can see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Remember where John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So Paul, having shown us that our identity is in Christ and that our life is hidden in Christ, he now moves on to encourage us to live as if we were in the heavenly realms, raised up with Christ, and to behold Christ by faith 
seated on the right hand of the Father, a triumphant king, a triumphant victor, a triumphant commander. And it's thoughts and images like this that will change us, that will fuel us for Christian living. And the second point that Paul then zones in on us is he says to us, in not so many words, put on the right clothes, guys. If you're a Christian, live in the right place and put on the right clothes. And we can see this particular theme outlined in the following verses up to verse 11. Put to death, therefore, Paul says, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. So Paul gives the Colossians some imperatives. He says, first of all, throw off those old rags that you wore so proudly before Christ claimed you. Throw off these rags, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, or some of your Bibles might say lust, evil desire, covetousness, or greed. And then Paul ends up by saying, which is idolatry. Now, these vices actually were the very same vices that Israel abhorred in the pagan world around them. Isn't it funny that Paul, and it wasn't coincidental that he used those. But the Christian now, Paul says, has to completely rid himself of these sins. Now, we are not perfected yet, but Paul, in chapter 2, verse 13, says this. Examine yourselves, Paul says, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or, or do, you not, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So Paul exhorts the Christians there to examine himself, to find if he's living in obedience with his Lord. And this involves discovering the sin behind the sin, so to speak. And you see Paul there. Do you notice when Paul mentions covetousness or greed? Do you see the little clause that comes after that? Which is idolatry. So Paul here is look, saying, look at, no matter how we sin in this world, in this temporal abode, there's always another deeper sin behind it. Now, I don't know about you, but I can attest to that in my own life when I sin or when I backslide. I often look at the sin that results from this. And though it's not good, it's usually not the real problem. The real problem is much, much deeper. And it's often in my own personal life anyways, it's often a wandering away from God, from his word, from prayer, from his people, Setting, on, setting my mind on desires and aspirations and goals on things that are not heavenly, earthly things. I find my identity starts to shift back again. And I have to arrest myself and seek the things that are above again. Because this shifting, you can find, takes control of you. 
unless you really, really wage war on us. Michael Reeve says this, he says, commenting on those then who look on something other than Christ. He says that people who define themselves by something other than Christ, they become something other than Christ. Ugly. Paul points out that God's judgment will come to those who practice these vices. He says, on account of these, that the wrath of God is coming. Now, the Colossians, by the grace of God, looks like they've turned their back to these vices. But then Paul gives them another imperative. He warns them to get rid of these rags, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, he says. And then in verse 9, he gives another imperative. He says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. You see, we as Christians, most of the time, I don't know about you, but most of the time, I know what's required of me to live in obedience. But sometimes I find I lack the desire to do that. And it tends to stir one another up emotionally, like we can encourage one another. Or I can sometimes find myself speaking to myself when I find that I'm lacking the desire to either pray or to read the word or to um, phone someone and give them a, an encouraging or a comforting word. And this is not good, but this is all part of what Paul says earlier about examining yourself to see are you in the faith. So Paul lays out these imperatives as sort of guardrails again to help us keep ourselves in check. And it's only by meditating on Christ and what he's done in my life that I can get any sort of desire back again to do Christian things, to get back in the game again after being subbed out for a while. Because even though I'm a Christian, even though we are Christians here who first Christ, we are actually damaged. We're not the perfect goods yet. We're not, believe it or not, fully human. We're broken. We're not like Adam and Eve, who themselves probably were only in the perfect state for a short while. But it's God's desire, and this is amazing, it's God's desire to build a, hu a new humanity. And that new humanity is pictured and was pictured in the church of old in the Old Testament and is now pictured today in us in this room. We are the new humans, God's new creation that, are, that will one day fully glorify God because we will fully see him as he is, that will one day take all the shame away from a watching world of what it means to be church. I love the commentator who says that one day the world will look and will see with astonishment that the church actually manifested the image of Christ, albeit badly, but now perfectly at the end of time. And this new humanity, and we can see it in the media and we can see it around the world and we can see it perhaps in this room, this new humanity will fix all the brokenness of the old humanity. It will fix sin, as Paul alludes to there, it will fix racism. It will fix this propensity in people to look down their noses at people who are different, either culturally 
either language-wise or in a myriad of ways. And even as Christians, we can find ourselves trapped in these little rabbit holes where we don't entirely feel comfortable or at home with people that are different to us. We're not as human as God intended us to be. But Paul says that we're being renewed daily in knowledge after the image of the Creator. And one of the ways that this has happened is that God, who's changed us, gives us a new heart and new desires. And one of the desires that we have as Christians is we desire to be like our older brother, Jesus, who's gone ahead of us. And therefore, Paul exhorts us, hey, dress like Jesus. Verses 12 to 14 shows how we can do this. Paul says, put on then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice the Old Testament Israel language there. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and of one as a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And then, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, Paul says, is the most desirable thing that we can aspire to as Christians. It's the overcoat over which we put, the, over which we put it over the other garments. What a picture this is. And so we come to the third point. As well as putting on these clothes, we must also sing the right song. And verse 15 outlines this, and let the peace of Christ, Paul says, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know what? We are to be a people of the book. We are to be a people who sing. We are to be a people who praise God in all we do and all we have. Over everything else, we are to be a people who are thankful. We are a people who behold Christ seated on the right hand of the Father, awaiting the wedding day when he comes down and whisks us up the bride. Chapter 2 in Hebrews is wonderful, verse 11 to 12. The writer of Hebrews says, speaking about Jesus, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And listen to this, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of your congregation. I will sing your praise. This is Jesus speaking up in the heavenlies to the Father. He's saying, I will sing of your name. That's us, each one of us in this room who's confessed Christ. I will, t I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregations, and I will sing your praise. Isn't that a wonderful image? As we are called to have a new song in our hearts, born out of new desires, born out of the overflowing love that God has for His Son, Christ, we are to be a people that sing just as Jesus is singing for us. Just as He is like, 
like someone who, you know, a mother or father was at the finish line at the school sports day, egging their child on, saying, come on, you can do it, finish it, I know you can. Christ is singing for us in heaven to the Father. These are my brothers. They shall be with me shortly. You can also see what's happening here in, these, in this particular verse. Christ, you can see, is our prophet. Can you see that? He's our king. He's our priest. And here we're shown the picture of Jesus fulfilling one of the roles as priest. In other words, he's leading in worship. Spurgeon has a little comment on this that might be helpful. Spurgeon says, Behold then in your midst, O church of God, in the days of his flesh there stood this glorious one whom angels worship, who is the brightness of his Father's glory in the very heaven of heavens. Yet when he stood here, it was to join in the worship of his people, declaring the Father's name unto his brethren, and with them singing praises unto the Most High. Does not this bring him very near to you? Does it not seem as if he might come at any moment and sit in the pew beside you? I feel as if already he stood on this platform side by side with me. Why shouldn't he? And so to summarize, we're told to live in the right place. We're told to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. We're told, secondly, to tear off our old rags, our sinful rags, and put on Christ's clothes. And thirdly, we're told to sing the right song, a song of praise born out of thankfulness to what God's done for you, forgiving you. So how can we finally apply this to our lives? Well, I think you might again ask yourself the question, where is your identity? And if you are identified, or if you do identify yourself as a follower of Christ, and if this is the core of your living, ask yourself, am I living out my new identity in Christ to the fullest? Am I seeking the things that are above? Am I setting my mind on things that are above? Or do I waste my time setting my mind on other things, on earthly things, unhelpful earthly things? Ask yourself, am I wearing the right clothes out of a desire to be obedient? Like Dara said this morning, out of um, joy, not duty. Am I desirous to love Jesus because he first loved me and he gave everything for me? Do I keep this picture of Christ foremost in my mind as I go about my daily chores? It's well known that what you look at, the music you listen to, the people you hang around with, that will all influence you. There's no doubt about it. I think anyone who's brutally honest, perhaps those of us who are older, are perhaps longer in the tooth, can attest to this, that the things we look at, the things we spend our time at, the people we hang around with, the music we listen to, they all kind of form our character. So I think it's very wise to choose what you look at, to choose who you hang around with, to choose your friends, to choose your music, to choose earthly things carefully. Because we can waste so much time on unhelpful earthly things, which will always pull us away from setting our minds on things that are above. And I can understand that. We all know life is so busy. And sometimes just the busyness of life, doing what you think are, are good and noble things, sometimes they can pull us away from earthly things or from heavenly things, 
from Christ. But there's no doubt what you invest your time and your energies and your passions in, they will leave a mark on you. Michael Reeves says that, you know, we should live um, as if Christ is coming tomorrow. Because you know what? Christ has given you eyes, he says, that see differently. Christ has given you ears that listen differently. And Christ has given you a mouth that speaks differently. So if you look at the things in this world that give your life meaning, they will never satisfy you because they are just fleeting. They will pass away one day. Now, if someone had told that to me as a college kid lying on my bed looking at that poster, I just wouldn't have believed them. It wasn't reality for me. I would have dismissed it because I was not following Christ. I was still earthly. There was no way that I could perceive Christ sitting on the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, having won salvation for those who trust in him. It just didn't make sense. Earthly things were the things that I desired most. They were the things that gave my life meaning and gave me identity. To cut that identity and to seek or even to be told of this new identity that is available in Christ for all repentant sinners who come to the cross with open hands of faith, this would have been a terrible message to me because I loved living my old life. I was quite comfortable. I was happy. But there is something better, Paul is saying here, that if we gaze upwards, we will be fuel for Christian living. We won't be forced into it. We will be motivated by the love of Christ to us, and therefore this will work out in our lives. Let's end with chapter or with uh, Psalm 84. If you'd like to go to Psalm 84, the first four verses there, I think, are very apt. You know, because Christ has given us a new heart, this heart of stone is gone. We can now sing, along with the psalmist, we can say, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the, court of the, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Let's pray. Father God, you are indeed a sweet God. You are indeed a sweet Father. You're a kind you're a compassionate, you're a patient Father. Oh Lord, we can attest to this in our lives. When we slip, when we set our gaze on earthly things, you're there to pick us up when we fall again. You're there to bring us back into fellowship with you again. You're there to remind us through your word and through prayer of all the promises that you've made to us, of all the hopes that are grounded, not in our emotions, but in you, Lord that one day we will see you face to face. We will truly understand your mission, how you worked in our lives, all these unforeseen things that happened in our lives that we thought perhaps were terrible, that perhaps you had some meaning or some purpose in them. 
to better us, to make us into a new human, a better human, a human replicated perfectly by Jesus. Father, help us um, today and help us during the week as we go about our earthly duties and our jobs to remember that everything we do should be done for your glory. The kindness that we show our work colleagues, the patience that we might show someone on the sports field who's fouling us, um, the love that we show our family, the obedience that we show to our parents, the kindness that we show to our children, not discouraging them, treating them as um, treating them as not objects, as Paul goes on in this letter at the end. He says that when we are renewed, when the creation is renewed, Paul goes on to say that this has huge implications for the family, the dy dynamics of the family, and even the relationship between master and slave. Father, you have completely rocked um, everything in this world which is wrong. You're going to fix it, Lord. And you're working on us now in this room. And bit by bit, you're revealing little glories. The veil is getting clearer, or the veil is being pulled up gradually. And we, one day perhaps, like Moses, will have a face that's illuminated with your love and your presence, O oh Lord. So, Father, help us to live out this reality. Help us not to get uh, overwhelmed by this world. Help us not to be get overwhelmed by, uh, by Satan, who is called the accuser, when he accuses us of our shortcomings, when he accuses us of not living up to the bill, of mocking us, when we say that we are, in re when we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. And he says to us, ha ha, you are not. But Father, this is the reality. You are working on us through the Spirit, Lord, to sanctify us and to change us. Let us believe this, that this be our fervent desire to continue to be obedient to the Spirit and to live out the life that you have planned for us so that we can become the person, the new creation that you have in mind for us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.